When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapters 9 and 10 from A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. And now Chapter 9, The Tournament. They were always having grand tournaments there at Camelot, and very stirring and picturesque and ridiculous human bullfights they were, too, but just a little wearisome to the practical mind. However, I was generally on hand, for two reasons— A man must not hold himself aloof from the things which his friends and his community have at heart, if he would be liked, especially as a statesman. And both as businessman and statesman, I wanted to study the tournament and see if I couldn't invent an improvement on it. That reminds me to remark in passing that the very first official thing I did in my administration, and it was on the very first day of it too, was to start a patent office, for I knew that a country without a patent office and good patent laws was just a crab. "'and couldn't travel any way but sideways or backways. "'Things ran along, a tournament nearly every week, "'and now and then the boys used to want me to take a hand. "'I mean, Sir Lancelot and the rest. "'But I said I would by and by. "'No hurry yet, and too much government machinery "'to oil up and set the rights and start a-going. "'We had one tournament which was continued from day to day "'during more than a week, "'and as many as five hundred knights took part in it, "'from first to last.' They were weeks gathering. They came on horseback from everywhere, from every ends of the country, and even from beyond the sea, and many brought ladies, and all brought squires and troops of servants. It was a most gaudy and gorgeous crowd, as to costumery, and very characteristic of the country and the time, in the way of high animal spirits, innocent indecencies of language, and happy-hearted indifference to morals. It was fight or look on, all day and every day, "'and sing, gamble, dance, carouse half the night every night. "'They had a most noble good time. "'You never saw such people. "'Those banks of beautiful ladies, "'shining in their barbaric splendors, "'would see a knight sprawl from his horse "'in the lists with a lank shaft "'the thickness of your ankle clean through him, "'and the blood spouting, "'and instead of fainting, "'they would clap their hands "'and crowd each other for a better view. "'Only sometimes one would dive into her handkerchief "'and look ostentatiously broken-hearted.' "'and then you could lay two to one "'that there was a scandal there somewhere, "'and she was afraid the public hadn't found it out. "'The noise at night would have been annoying to me ordinarily, "'but I didn't mind it in the present circumstances, "'because it kept me from hearing the quacks "'detaching legs and arms from the day's cripples. "'They ruined an uncommon good old cross-cut saw for me, "'and broke the saw-buck, too, but I let it pass. "'And as for my axe, well, I made up my mind "'that the next time I lent an axe to a surgeon, "'I would pick my century.' I not only watched this tournament from day to day, but detailed an intelligent priest from my Department of Public Morals and Agriculture and ordered him to report it, 
"'for it was my purpose, by and by, "'when I should have gotten the people along far enough "'to start a newspaper. "'The first thing you want in a new country "'is a patent office, "'then work up your school system, "'and after that, out with your paper. "'A newspaper has its faults, "'and plenty of them, but no matter. "'It's hark from the tomb for a dead nation, "'and don't you forget it. "'You can't resurrect a dead nation without it. "'There isn't any way. "'So I wanted to sample things.' and be finding out what sort of reporter material I might be able to rake together out of the sixth century when I should come to need it. Well, the priest did very well, considering. He got in all the details, and that is a good thing in a local item. You see, he had kept books for the undertaker department of his church when he was younger, and there, you know, the money's in the details. The more details, the more swag. Bearers, mutes, candles, prayers, everything counts. "'and if the bereaved don't buy prayers enough, "'you mark up your candles with a forked pencil, "'and your bill shows up all right. "'And he had a good knack of getting in the complimentary thing "'here and there about a knight that was likely to advertise. "'No, I mean a knight that had influence. "'And he also had a neat gift of exaggeration. "'For in his time he had kept a door for a pious hermit "'who lived in a sty and worked miracles. "'Of course, this novice's report lacked whoop and crash "'and lurid description.' "'and therefore wanted the true ring. "'But its antique wording was quaint and sweet and simple, "'and full of the fragrances and flavors of the time, "'and these little merits made up in a measure "'for its more important lacks. "'Here's an extract from it. "'Then Sir Brian de la Isles and Grimor Grimorsum, "'knights of the castle, "'encountered with Sir Aglavale and Sir Tor, "'and Sir Tor smote down Sir Grimor Grimorsum to the earth. "'Then came Sir Carados of Dolores Tower.' and Sir Turquine, knights of the castle, and there encountered with them Sir Percival de Gallus and Sir Lamrick de Gallus, that were two brothers, and there encountered Sir Percival with Sir Carados, and either brake their spears under their hands, and then Sir Turquine with Sir Lamrick, and either of them smote down other horse and all, all to the earth, and either parties rescued other and horsed them again. And Sir Arnold and Sir Gauter, knights of the castle, "'encountered with Sir Brandes and Sir Kay, "'and these four knights encountered mightily, "'and broke their spears to their hands. "'Then came Sir Pertolo from the castle, "'and there encountered with him Sir Lionel, "'and there Sir Pertolope, the green knight, "'smoked down Sir Lionel, brother to Sir Lancelot. "'All this was marked by noble heralds, "'who bear him best, and their names. "'Then Sir Bleobaris broke his spear upon Sir Gareth, "'but of that stroke Sir Bleobaris fell to the earth.' When Sir Galahodin saw that, he had Sir Gareth keep him, and Sir Gareth smote him to the earth. Then Sir Galahad gat a spear to avenge his brother, and in the same wise Sir Gareth served him, and Sir Dinadan and his brother Le Cote Maltail, and Sir Sagramor Le Desirius, and Sir Dodinus Le Savage, all these he bare down with one spear. When King Aswissant of Ireland saw, saw Sir Gareth fare so, he marveled what he might be, that one time seemed green, and another time, at his again coming, he seemed blue. And thus at every course that he rode to and fro, he changed his color, so that there might neither king nor knight have ready cognizance of him. Then Sir Agwazance, the king of Ireland, encountered with Sir Gareth, and there Sir Gareth smote him from his horse, saddled and all. And then came King Carados of Scotland, and Sir Gareth smote him down horse and man. And in the same wise he served King Uriens of the land of Gore. And then there came in six bagged magus, and Sir Gareth smote him down horse and man to the earth. 
"'and begged Magus's son, Meliganus, "'break a spear upon Sir Gareth mightily and knightly. "'And then Sir Galahalt, the noble prince, cried on high, "'Knight with the many colours, well hast thou justed. "'Now make thee ready that I may just with thee.' "'Sir Gareth heard him, and he got a great spear, "'and so they encountered together, "'and there the prince brake his spear. "'But Sir Gareth smote him upon the left side of the helm, "'that he reeled here and there, "'and he had fallen down had not his men recovered him. "'Truly,' said King Arthur, "'the knight with the many colours is a good knight. "'Wherefore the king called unto him Sir Lancelot, "'and prayed him to encounter with that knight. "'Sir,' said Sir Lancelot, "'I may as well find in my heart "'to forbear him at this time, "'for he hath had travail enough this day, "'and when a good knight doth so well upon some day, "'it is no good knight's part to let him of his worship, "'and namely, when he seeth the knight hath done so great labour. "'For peradventure,' said Sir Lancelot, "'his quarrel is here this day.' "'and peradventure he is best beloved with this lady of all that be here. "'For I see well he paineth himself, and enforceth him to do great deeds. "'And therefore,' said Sir Lancelot, "'as for me, this day he shall have the honour, "'though it lay in my power to put him from it. "'I would not.' "'There was an unpleasant little episode that day, "'which for reasons of state I struck out of my priest's report. "'You will have noticed that Gary was doing some great fighting in the engagement. "'When I say Gary, I mean Sir Gareth.' "'Gary was my private pet name for him. "'It suggested I had a deep affection for him, "'and that was the case. "'But it was a private pet name only, "'and never spoken aloud to anyone, "'much less to him. "'Being a noble, "'he would not have endured a familiarity like that from me. "'Well, to proceed, "'I sat in the private box set apart for me "'as the king's minister. "'While Sir Dinadam was waiting for his turn to enter the list, "'he came in there and sat down and began to talk, "'for he was always making up to me, "'because I was a stranger, and he liked to have a fresh market for his jokes, "'the most of them having reached that stage of wear "'where the teller has to do the laughing himself "'while the other person looks sick. "'I had always responded to his efforts as well as I could, "'and felt a very deep and real kindness for him, too, "'for the reason that if by malice of fate "'he knew the one particular anecdote "'which I had heard oftenest "'and had most hated and most loathed all my life, "'he had at least spared it of me.' It was one which I had heard attributed to every humorous person who had ever stood on American soil, from Columbus down to Artemis Ward. It was about a humorous lecturer who flooded an ignorant audience with the killingest jokes for an hour, and never got a laugh. And then when he was leaving, some gray simpletons wrung him gratefully by the hand, and said it had been the funniest thing they had ever heard. And it was all they could do to keep from laughing right out in meeting. That anecdote never saw the day that it was worth the telling, and yet I sat under the telling of it hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of times, and cried and cursed all the way through. Then who can hope to know what my feelings were, to hear this amber-plated ass start in on it again in the murky twilight of tradition, before the dawn of history, while even Lactantius might be referred to as the late Lactantius, and the Crusades wouldn't be born for five hundred years yet? Just as he finished, the call-boy came, so ha-hawing like a demon, he went rattling and clanking out like a crace of loose castings, and I knew nothing more. It was some minutes before I came to, and then I opened my eyes just in time to see Sir Gareth fetch him an awful welt, and I unconsciously out with the prayer, I hope to graces he's killed. But ill luck, before I had got half through with the words, Sir Gareth crashed into Sir Sagramore the Desirius and sent him thundering over his horse's crupper, and Sir Sagramore caught my remark, "'and thought I meant it for him. "'Well, whenever one of those people "'got a thing into his head, 
"'There was no getting it out again. "'I knew that, so I saved my breath "'and offered no explanations. "'As soon as Sir Sagramore got well, "'he notified me that there was a little account "'to settle between us, "'and he named a day three or four years in the future, "'place of settlement, "'the list where the offense had been given. "'I said I'd be ready when he got back. "'You see, he was going for the Holy Grail. "'The boys all took a flyer at the Holy Grail now and then. "'It was a several years' cruise.' They always put in the long absence snooping around, in the most conscientious way, though none of them had any idea where the Holy Grail really was, and I don't think any of them actually expected to find it, or would have known what to do with it if they had run across it. You see, it was just the northwest passage of that day, as you may say. That was all. Every year expeditions went out Holy Grailing, and next year relief expeditions went out to hunt for them. There was worlds of reputation in it, but no money. "'Why, they actually wanted me to put in. "'Well, I should smile. "'We'll return with Chapter 10 "'of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court "'right after these sponsor messages. "'And now Chapter 10, Beginnings of Civilization. "'The round table soon heard of the challenge, "'and of course it was a good deal discussed, "'for such things interested the boys.' The king thought I ought now to set forth in quest of adventures, so that I might gain renown and, and be the more worthy to meet Sir Sagramore when the several years should have rolled away. I excused myself for the present. I said it would take me three or four years yet to get things well fixed up and going smoothly. Then I should be ready. All the chances were that at the end of that time Sir Sagramore would still be out grailing, so no valuable time would be lost by the postponement. I should then have been in office six or seven years, and I believed my system and machinery would be so well developed that I could take a holiday without its working any harm. I was pretty well satisfied with what I had already accomplished. In various quiet nooks and corners, I had the beginnings of all sorts of industries underway. Nuclei of future vast factories, the iron and steel machineries of my future civilization. In these were gathered together the brightest young minds I could find, and I kept agents out raking the country for more, all the time. I was training a crowd of ignorant folk into experts, experts in every sort of handiwork and scientific calling. These nurseries of mine went smoothly and privately along undisturbed in their obscure country retreats, for nobody was allowed to come into their precincts without a special permit, for I was afraid of the church. I had started a teacher factory and a lot of Sunday schools the first thing. As a result, I now had an admirable system of graded schools in full blast in those places, and also a complete variety of Protestant congregations, all in a prosperous and growing condition. Everybody could be any kind of Christian he wanted to. There was perfect freedom in that matter. But I confined public religious teaching to the churches and the Sunday schools, permitting nothing of it in my other educational buildings. I could have given my own sect the preference and made everybody a Presbyterian without any trouble, but that would have been to affront a law of human nature. Spiritual wants and instincts are as various in the human family as are physical appetites, complexions, and features, and a man is only at his best morally when he is equipped with the religious garment whose color and shape and size most nicely accommodate themselves to the spiritual complexion, angularities, and stature of the individual who wears it. And besides, I was afraid of a united church. It makes a mighty power, the mightiest conceivable. And then when it by and by gets into selfish hands, as it's always bound to do, it means death to human liberty and paralysis to human thought. All mines were royal property, and there were a good many of them. 
They had formerly been worked as savages always worked mines, holes grubbed in the earth and the mineral brought up in sacks of hide by hand, at the rate of a ton a day. But I had begun to put the mining on a scientific basis as early as I could. Yes, I had made pretty handsome progress when Sir Sagramore's challenge struck me. Four years rolled by, and then? Well, you would never imagine it in the world. Unlimited power is the ideal thing when it is in safe hands. The despotism of heaven is the one absolutely perfect government. An earthly despotism would be the absolutely perfect earthly government if the conditions were the same. Namely, the despot, the perfectest individual of the human race, and his lease of life perpetual. But as a perishable perfect man must die and leave his despotism in the hands of an imperfect successor, an earthly despotism is not merely a bad form of government, it is the worst form possible. My works showed what a despot could do with the resources of a kingdom at his command. Unsuspected by this dark land, I had the civilization of the 19th century booming under its very nose. It was fenced away from the public view, but there it was, a gigantic and unassailable fact, and to be heard from yet, if I lived and had luck. There it was, as sure a fact and as substantial a fact as any serene volcano, standing innocent with its smokeless summit in the blue sky, and giving no sign of the rising hell in its bowels. My schools and churches were children four years before. They were grown up now. My shops of that day were vast factories now. Where I had a dozen trained men then, I had a thousand now. Where I had one brilliant expert then, I had fifty now. I stood with my hand on the cock, so to speak, ready to turn it on and flood the midnight world with light at any moment. But I was not going to do the thing in that sudden way. It was not my policy. The people could not have stood it, and moreover, I should have had the established Roman Catholic Church on my back in a minute. No, I had been going cautiously all the while. I had had confidential agents trickling through the country some time, whose office was to undermine knighthood by imperceptible degrees, and to gnaw a little at this and that and the other superstition, and so prepared the way gradually for a better order of things. I was turning on my light one candle power at a time, and meant to continue to do so. I had scattered some branch schools secretly about the kingdom, and they were doing very well. I meant to work this racket more and more, as time wore on, if nothing occurred to frighten me. One of my deepest secrets was my West Point, my military academy. I kept that most jealously out of sight, and I did the same with my naval academy, which I had established at a remote seaport. Both were prospering to my satisfaction. Clarence was twenty-two now, and was my head executive, my right hand. He was a darling. He was equal to anything. There wasn't anything he couldn't turn his hand to. Of late I had been training him for journalism, but the time seemed about right for a start of the newspaper line, nothing big, but just a small weekly for experimental circulation in my civilization nurseries. He took to it like a duck to water. There was an editor concealed in him, sure. Already he had doubled himself in one way. He talked sixth century and wrote nineteenth. His journalistic style was climbing steadily. It was already up to the back settlement Alabama mark and couldn't be told from the editorial output of that region either by matter or flavor. We had another large departure on hand, too. This was a telegraph and a telephone, our first venture in this line. These wires were for private service only, as yet, and must be kept private until a riper day should come. We had a gang of men on the road, working mainly by night. They were stringing ground wires. We were afraid to put up poles, 
"'for they would attract too much inquiry. "'Ground wires were good enough, in both instances, "'for my wires were protected by an insulation of my own invention which was perfect. "'My men had orders to strike across country, "'avoiding roads, and establishing connection with any considerable towns "'whose lights betrayed their presence, and leaving experts in charge. "'Nobody could tell you how to find any place in the kingdom, "'for nobody ever went intentionally to any place.' "'but only struck it by accident in his wanderings, "'and then generally left it "'without thinking to inquire what its name was. "'At one time and another "'we had sent out topographical expeditions "'to survey and map the kingdom, "'but the priests had always interfered "'and raised trouble. "'So we had given the thing up for the present. "'It would be poor wisdom to antagonize the church. "'As for the general condition of the country, "'it was as it had been when I arrived in it, "'to all intents and purposes. "'I had made changes, but they were necessarily slight, and they were not noticeable. Thus far, I had not even meddled with taxation, outside of the taxes which provided the royal revenues. I had systematized those, and put the service on an effective and righteous basis. As a result, these revenues were already quadrupled, and yet the burden was so much more equably distributed than before, that all the kingdom felt a sense of relief, and the praises of my administration were hearty and general." Personally, I struck an interruption, now, but I did not mind it. It could not have happened at a better time. Earlier it could have annoyed me, but now everything was in good hands and swimming right along. The king had reminded me several times, of late, that the postponement I had asked for, four years before, had about run out now. It was a hint that I ought to be starting out to seek adventures and get up a reputation of a size to make me worthy of the honor of breaking the lance with Sir Sagramore, who was still out grailing that was being hunted for by various relief expeditions, and might be found any year now. So you see I was expecting this interruption. It did not take me by surprise. We'll return next week Sunday night with two more chapters from A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Hope you're enjoying our story. If you are, please do stop and send us a review, especially you Apple listeners. Reviews help new listeners find us, and we appreciate them very much. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.